0: Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the news meeting with James O'Brien, the LBC presenter, who's written another book that I suspect is going to be a bestseller too: How They Broke Britain. There are either people, James, who never want to hear a thing you said, or yeah. actually want to hold it close. I, yeah, and, and I, it gives I, them hope I, or I keep sense trying of to despair.
1: Build a bridge between them, or, or hope that some of the people who fit into the first category, might might start paying attention to some of the stuff that I've said, most obviously about Brexit, Donald Trump and Boris
0: Johnson, all of which have not turned out perfectly. This book, though, is about 10 individuals who you say broke Britain. Is it really about the people who broke Britain? Or is it about Brexit?
1: Yeah, but the Brexit vote happened in an ecosystem ecosystem is the word i use far too much in the book <laughs> but i couldn't really think of a suitable synonym and so and it goes back way before 2016 it goes back to Rupert Murdoch buying the sun it goes back to the circumstances in which david cameron both became leader of the conservative party and thought that he could you know deploy his arsenal of talents and attributes to to unravel the Gordian knot of Euroscepticism where every other previous leader had failed and the sort of complacent arrogance that led to the um, the promise to hold a referendum and the belief that he'd come back from Brussels with some sort of um, golden goose or goose that lays golden eggs. And, and then, you know, you look at the uh, subsequent role um, uh, of of Jeremy Corbyn, you look at his role in the actual referendum campaign or his absence of a role in the referendum campaign and you look at the what was created by the media, what was created by by newspapers, and the fact that many many people believed things that were profoundly untrue so all of that contributed to and arguably created the the brexit vote, but the ecosystem was was under construction both deliberately and accidentally, long long before the referendum was called. So just talk through, who did break Britain? There's three engines of change that I identify. The first is uh, a, a right-wing media that has just gone to places that it had never gone to before. Um, you're looking at the demonization of, of not just refugees, as we've seen latterly, but foreigners in general and foreigners with jobs and foreigners with every right to be here and the um, the seeping of that sort of racism or jingoism into the, the, the ethno-nationalist idea that people who are not white are somehow not British or, or are still foreigners or settlers, which is a word that I've seen some of the nastier commentators using recently. And that, that has been... That has been underway since probably Larry Lamb's time at The Sun, certainly since Kelvin McKenzie's. And it has, through The Telegraph and The Spectator, it's sort of dressed itself up in more recent years in much, much more respectable clothes. So the sort of attitudes that might once have been a Sun column um, are now just as likely to appear in The Sunday Times or The Telegraph. And it's no accident that a lot of the writers that Murdoch favours now write for both his Red Meat, Outlets and for his supposedly more cerebral outlets, they just use a slightly different vocabulary to to deliver more or less the same messages. And and then the the, the euro, for want of a better word, because euro scepticism sounds relatively mild, relatively benign. That makes me think of Bill Cash. It doesn't make me think of you know rabid representations of the European Union as being some form of Fourth Reich or being something dedicated to the denigration of British interests and British values, which is patently untrue. It's a flawed, fallible institution but the idea that it exists to actually damage Britain took hold on a scale that could never have happened without that level of of media absurdity and that in turn has sort of Um, uh, created a new generation of conservative politician that has really come to the fore since 2016. So the idea that Nadine Dorries can be Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport is objectively ridiculous by by any traditional measure. That Jacob Rees-Mogg, who who was a standing joke until roughly the moment that the referendum result dropped, can end up as business secretary. Secretary of State for Business is, is palpably absurd. And yet it's normal in the ecosystem that has grown out of the ecosystem that allowed the crazy stuff to happen and then the third so that's the conservative party it, the, the conservative party that has no place for a nicholas soames or a david gork or a or an anna Subri, um, and or a ken clark actually and 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 the media which bears no resemblance even to what it what it looked like in some areas in the 90s and then and then you've got these the, the, this proliferation of Lobby groups that call themselves think tanks and um, th- that are secretly funded and that have managed to inform and infest almost every level of public discourse while never ever disclosing whose interest it is they are acting in or indeed what qualifications they have to pontificate on weighty subjects on every
0: program under the sun. So, so you... Break those down. You do Rupert Murdoch, Paul Dacre, Andrew Neal yes. as examples in media. Neil
1: crosses quite a few of these categories, actually. He's not exclusively media because he was the first newspaper editor to publish pamphlets published by the Institute of Economic Affairs as though they were journalism.
0: But, well, let's park the bus there for a second yes, because I thought that... Actually, I generally don't ever really talk about Murdoch. I work there. I went to the Times, yeah. of course. Yeah. And um, but I thought there was one thing that you did in that chapter about Murdoch that was really astute, which was that appreciation of him as both this journalist and businessman mm. and and this idea of him, I was thought as the grandson of someone who covered Gallipoli, believed in the power of journalism and reporting, and at the same time, someone who left Oxford University and became obsessed and fascinated by tabloid journalism and the power of that journalism. And and in that Murdoch chapter, you also do something, James, which is reflect, and I haven't seen anyone else note this, it's not the fact that there aren't brilliant people working for The Times and brilliant journalists. It's that within the culture of that paper, and I was part of it, you don't criticise the voices and views of the others. Mm. And so within those institutions, within those organizations, you may think that someone is really wrong, but you don't call them out. And that, I thought, was really, really well observed. On the Andrew Neil chapter, I thought, I'm not sure this is fair, in that Andrew Neil, you may not share his views, and you may dislike his kind of personal style, and you may also think that, you know, he has no business keeping the likes of Rod Little or Douglas Murray in his pages. But it felt to me as though at the core of it was an argument about Andrew Neil having such prominence on the BBC. And I looked at that and thought, I'm not sure your argument's right there. I'm not sure that it's the case that kind of, if you like, people who seem or have conservative histories get a kicking on the BBC. And that, you know, people who've come from the left are sort of somehow ushered in and allowed through. I'm not sure that's the case. I mean, personally, I appointed the former editor of the Evening Standard to be the editor of the Today programme and a former deputy editor of the Guardian to be the editor of Newsnight. It feels to me as though there's a mix of people there.
1: They're off air. Both of those appointments are off air, it's a, which means they don't generally come to the attention of right-wing newspapers. They don't generally earn the oh, ire of Paul Dacre, you're not really, I mean, Sarah Sands might be a slight exception to the rule, but you're not gonna have a Daily Mail photographer parked outside her house in the way that you would outside Emily Maitlis's or, or, or even Gary Lineker's, and Andrew Neil never got any of that. The parallel I use that's more helpful, perhaps, is a 25-year-old fact-checker called Oscar Bentley, yes. who, who appeared on the Daily Politics on his first ever shift to provide a very sober, evidence-based analysis of why Rishi Sunak can't really claim the Tories of halved crime, because he's comparing numbers that included fraud and computer crime with numbers that didn't. And the day after a 25-year-old fact-checker did that, he was being monstered in The Telegraph, The Sun, The Mail, The Express, um, and, and for more than one day. And his crime was to have posted as a student a picture of his dog on a Facebook page called Dogs for Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> whereas the man who presented the Daily Politics for a decade actually presented it was publishing um, a magazine that goes about as close to the unacceptable in the context of uh, commentary and, and opinion
0: writing as, as, as any in the country. But, James, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I... I'm with you on that because partly... Firstly, I'm I'm one of those people who's of the view that Gary Lineker should be able to express what he thinks as a citizen of this country and has a different job when he's on air, right? Yes, of course. I appreciate, of course, that Andrew Neil's slightly different. You know, he's in news and current affairs. He, he's got to behave differently. But I'd look at him and, you know, I worked with him obviously at the BBC and worked with him here at Tortoise. He did a podcast for us here. I would still say... As an interviewer, as someone who essentially interrogated people of every party, I thought he did that incredibly well. I completely agree. That I mean, he's he's just an exemplar
1: of double standards because the BBC is so frightened of the kind of criticism that people like Emily Maitlis and, and, and Lewis Goodall have received that they will keep people like him on air doing a brilliant job and lose people who also oh. do a brilliant job but who are not going to be
0: acceptable to the Paul Dacres of, of but, this world. But James, isn't that the extension of the Paul Dacre chapter in some ways? Yes. What you're really describing is the extent to which the BBC can be, and at times has been, intimidated by the Mail or the Murdoch press. Yes,
1: and, and, and I'd use Nick Robinson as another example, and this is in no way uh, 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 impugning his, his journalism, but he was president of the... Macclesfield Young Conservatives, the Cheshire Young Conservatives, the Oxford University Young Conservatives, and then the Young Conservatives. Imagine for a moment anybody who had held positions like that in the Labour student movement being promoted to a a really high presenting position on the BBC at the moment. It's not impossible that it would happen. David Aronovich was head of the NNUS. He was on the BBC for ages. But he wasn't presenting the flagship news programme in the morning, interviewing... government politicians no, and senior think... opposition politicians and, and and it's again it's it's simply the ecosystem that's why I have to keep returning to this word it's the ecosystem in which we have redefined what is normal and what is not normal. It is normal for a former head of the student the conservative student union to hold one of the plummest jobs in BBC presenting. It's almost inconceivable for a former head of the Labour student union to hold a comparable position and the Oscar Bentley example shows us why.
0: I, I, I suppose I I, I sympathise with the kind of spirit of this fight. I don't think the examples are right. So I, I have to confess I haven't read Nadine Doris's book. Have you read it? I haven't read it,
1: but I'm happy to take David Icke's analysis <laughs> that it proves he's been right all along.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. That's the best possible, you know, you can see it on the paperback cover right Stick now. Stick on the cover immediately. But So I've read some reporting of the book. Mm. One element of it, which is amazing to me, is that Nadine Doris wanted Michael Grade to be appointed to Ofcom, mm. the media regulator. But Robbie Gibb, the former uh, Andrew Neil producer who then went to go and work in Number 10, who then ends up on the board of the BBC, was lobbying to get Stephen Gilbert in that position on Michael Grade to Ofcom, which, of course, regulates the BBC has oversight over the whole media landscape. That feels to me more of the problem that you're talking about. That feels to me more like a world in which, as you say in the book, there are no rules. I agree. I mean, that only emerged subsequent to me finishing (laughs) that book. Robbie Gibb is, is,
1: is fairly well featured in the book, actually. He's an extremely good example of of what I'm describing. But but yeah, I am describing something a little different to what you describe, except that Robbie Gibb also tried to lecture Newsnight staff on what impartiality was. And, and Lewis Goodall, who was a very much a rising star there, was told on several occasions that Robbie Gibb has really got your card marked. He's really keeping a close eye on you. He's really coming for you. And Lewis would re- reflect on that by saying, well, how, how can it be that I am getting c- crucified for a supposed impartiality because I was the um the sixth form representative of the Erdington <laughs> Labour Party and Robbie Gibb has literally just just um left Downing Street as director of communication. So this is it's like the the parameters of what's normal and, and I have to you have to step back from it and it's very 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 hard to do to step back from it because if you're booking someone from the Institute of Economic Affairs or someone from the Taxpayers Alliance you haven't got time to ask whether they've got any business being in studios and if you're talking about who is in prominent positions at the Beeb and who is not you haven't really got time to work out whether or not there is a relationship between how those appointments would be greeted in the broader media landscape and and why some people come in for kicking how can carol vorderman be compelled to resign from bbc Wales and a show that she presents from a very whimsical position the last episode i heard she shared uh, uh, at some length her disdain for pickled onions but carol (laughs) vorderman has been targeted by the other media institutions in this country. And the BBC gets rid of Carol Vorderman because they are frightened of the noise. They are frightened of the noise and the noise never reaches Andrew Neil or Nick Robinson. How did your experience presenting Newsnight affect the way you think about it? It was huge. Um, I didn't notice at the time quite how huge it was. There's one moment that was the moment I realized I couldn't stay. And it was more to do with the, 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 the bogus nature of balance or false equivalence that, than it was to do with any of the, the things that we've touched on so far. And it was when the uh, sort of lunatic fringe of the lunatic fringe of Brexit were talking about going WTO leaving without any trade agreements whatsoever and we'd be absolutely fine because well we're british aren't we seems to be the extent of the logical analysis and and let's go WTO and it was it was in the tory party it wasn't just ukip or, um, or or newspaper it was actually in the tory party you'd have prominent Brexiter MPs, ERG people actually insisting that we could do it. Now, it's observably untrue. It's objectively untrue that we'd be okay in those circumstances. But by that point, Britain had already become so broken that even challenging the blatant falsehood of that would have been construed as bias if it had happened on the BBC. So we get Pascal Lamy booked for the program former director general of the world trade organization and i say to the team that's great how long let's try and clear a bit more of the program because i'd like to talk to him for as long as i can because most of us need a real and very quick crash course in what the world trade organization does and what it is and what it means because we've never had to think about it before because we've been in the european union they say okay well we've got 10 or 11 minutes and i'm like that's great that's brilliant let's start working out what we're going to talk about and they say uh, the the, the boss says well we're going to have to have well obviously we're going to have to have another guest as well and i and i said why why do we have to have another guest pascal Lamy is going to come in and talk to us about what the world trade organization does and is and he ran it how can anybody balance that out are you going to come on and say, well, no, it doesn't do that. Anti-WTO. Yes, no, you didn't. And and I say, I, and and I said, all right. So who've we got? And they said Andrea Leadsom. And I thought this isn't right. There's something very, very wrong here, because I could not be less interested in what Andrea Leadsom <laughs> has to say about. And so I interview Lammy. He's brilliant, as you'd expect. And I have to turn from the former Director General of the World Trade Organization to Andrea Leadsom, who I don't have enough knowledge of her CV to tell you what her qualifi. I think she might have worked in the city once. I have to turn to Andrea Leadsom and say, Andrea, you disagree. And we're off. And that, that's where we'd got to by then. So, by what you, so what have you come to think about impartiality? um I, well i think that impartiality and balance are two very different things and i think that impartiality the judgment on impartiality should probably be confined to what happens on air i think if you are obviously obviously rapidly uh impartial off air then then there will come a point where conversations would need to be had and decisions would have to be made about whether or not you can present a news programme in good faith and retain the confidence of the audience, not the confidence of Paul Dacre or Tony Gallagher, the confidence of the audience. Um, and that would allow Andrew Neil to carry on and Nick Robinson to carry on and uh, Emily Maitlis to carry on and, and various other people to carry on. But that's, that's, that's impartiality. The problem, my big problem is with balance. My big problem is with the Uh, idea of having to book people to offer up the alternative view i always think that if um we mentioned i mentioned galileo in the in the podcast proper because i think about him quite a lot oddly when we're having these conversations i I think about heresy and i think about someone being demonstrably and completely correct about something with which almost the entire world disagrees and if if galileo appeared on Newsnight 20 years ago to talk about um, uh, you know heliocentrism. They'd have had to book Nigello Lorsini to insist <laughs> to insist. In fact, that heliocentrism wasn't true at all.
0: They would have been told that that was false balance, but they probably yeah. would have booked it nonetheless. Yes. But what happens if and when Labour wins the next election? You suspect they will. Yes, I think so. And I know this is not going to be the first time you're going to be on air trying to make sense of the country and politics when Labour's in power. But it's different, James, because, frankly, you're much better known. People have now, for a decade or more, looked to you to try and articulate an argument that's often but not solely against the Conservative Party. It's striking to me that in the book, one of the figures who broke Britain is Jeremy Corbyn. So Mm -hmm. it's not like you're going to run from an argument with the Labour Party. But how do you begin to think about what your job will be in the event that Keir Starman was Prime Minister? Well, I, I've spent seven years describing the news
1: as bad for the soul, but very good for business. And I think I could live with a few years of it being good for the soul and very bad for business. I mean, it's a commercial organisation, LBC, and there, there, there is only so much um, dis- d- d- diminishment of audience that, that could be sustained. I hope I don't. I, I mean, I hope I carry on. We don't only talk about politics. We certainly don't only talk about Brexit anymore. But, um, but yeah, I I mean, in terms of speaking truth to power, if power is not behaving abominably, regardless of who's holding it, then speaking truth to power, if it's not too pompous to describe myself like that, speaking truth to power becomes less important.
0: You say at the beginning of the book, I said, you know, there are no rules. How do you create a country where there are better rules? Well, there was.
1: I did you know you're so right when you say I've been talking about this a lot? Because in Norwich last night, I was asked a similar question from the audience. And I, I, I was astonished by how much optimism I derived from my own answer, which had never actually occurred to me before. But think of Amber Rudd. Think of Amber Rudd's resignation, which feels like generations ago. It yes. feels like a different age entirely. And she resigned. Uh, pretty much because of mistakes that somebody else had made, but which she was required by convention to take responsibility for. Theresa May was prime minister, not Anthony Eden. It was it was well within the last <laughs> memory years. Yeah,
0: the last six or seven years. So it's it's there. And Look, then, she resigned over the failure of the Home Office to handle people who came as part of the Windrush generation. Compare that
1: to Owen Paterson. Just, what, two years later, when someone is found to have committed egregious breaches of parliamentary standards. And the response to that by Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson and Charles Moore and sundry other members of the groupings that I describe at length in the book, they launched the Save Owen Paterson Society. Their response to rule breaking was to try to set fire to the rule book. So it's not, it's not an enormous ask or or an enormously optimistic position to simply hope that we can dial things back to the time when Amber Rudd resigned and when Priti Patel got sacked for flying off for secret meetings with the foreign government in Israel and lying to the prime minister about it. This was all in political terms yesterday. It wasn't 10 years ago or 20 years ago. This was under Theresa May. So answering the question last night made me realise that rather than trying to assemble some wonderful blueprint for a new Jerusalem. Actually, the first step towards restoring normality is going back to our last version of it. Just we do what we do. We have leaders who
0: expect us to behave to certain rules. And
1: if your prime minister and your independent advisor on ministerial standards tells you that someone's a bully, you just sack them.
0: Do you think now you'll see the UK rejoin the European Union in your lifetime? Well,
1: that, that calls my mortality into question, <laughs> doesn't it? That's the thing, and, and my blood pressure <laughs> and sundry other sort of variables. Um i i i don't know i i think i i think well, i mean you're a rejoiner are you i i not 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 now i mean are you not well i want to re- i think we're obviously better off in it but the, the the question you ask is much more complicated than that it's yeah. not magic wand territory is it number one i don't think there'll be any case of them wanting us back in until it's an Fair. almost neutral political issue in this country they're not going to want to be a football that we spend uh, f- another couple of years kicking around to to, to the detriment of everybody involved um and then there's the terms on which we'd rejoin, which would almost certainly be considerably inferior from a Eurosceptic point of view, from the terms, from the terms on which we left. But I, I, I think what will happen, and you see this actually happening all the time, but again, because of the ecosystem in which we all live, you don't notice it. It's not properly reported unless you do what we do and you, you get paid to pay attention. We're, 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 we're chipping away already. Like the things we were supposed to celebrate losing, we're either restoring or retaining. So this week, a very quiet story about um, workers' rights, about how we will actually align with the legislation that was passed when we were members of the European Union. We're not going to set fire to that, what Jacob Rees-Mogg would call red tape, because it would be, I mean, stupid to do so, mm. which is always the point. It's as if the, the, the provenance of legislation is more important than the probity of it. That's the fundamental Uh, Brexit position is because it it smells a bit French Mm -hmm. or it smells a bit German. We don't want it and you say it's actually a really good law It's a really good protection for British workers. It just so happens that French workers in Limoges enjoy the same protections as well That's not a reason to chuck it away (laughs) just because it's got uh, you know a broader application across Europe so you're going to see it in uh, Words like alignment and words like exemption exemptions for specific areas of employment I I can't keep track of how many exemptions are being issued So eventually, we're going to have liberty of mobility, which will be nothing like freedom of freedom of movement, (laughs) but it will but it will apply to everybody from all of the exempted sectors coming into this country. Without, of course, and this is the kicker, there's always a kicker. Without any
0: reciprocal (laughs) arrangements for British workers going overseas, going to Europe. I, I know you've got to go and you've got to get on a train. You've got to go up to Scotland. I'm just imagining you getting into the carriage, sitting down in your seat, and finding a member of the Conservative Cabinet in the chair next to you. Which one would you most like it to be? Oh, lordy. Um, Well, I'll be travelling in economy, so it's not going (laughs) to
1: happen. I'll be in standard (laughs) class. Um, I I think Jeremy Hunt is probably the most clubbable. He did my holiday cover, and my producer, Eleanor, really liked him, and that is a very high... (laughs) Recommendation: I can't list the people that have made less felicitous impressions on my team <laughs> when, when, when I've been away. But, but Jeremy Hunt, I think, would be quite interesting to talk to. But you're presuming a degree of indiscretion that is
0: unlikely to be. Or you're presuming they,
1: <laughs> they wouldn't get up and change carriages, which is probably optimistic <laughs>
0: anyway. James O'Brien, thank you very much. James, thank you. Tortoise.